Hey, my name is Britton. Uh, welcome to Ram Park if you're new. If you're not, welcome back. Over the past couple months, we've been working our way through questions that you all submitted. And um, we have just a couple weeks left of that. And this morning's question is, at one point it was like the second highest, and I think it finished up at about the fourth highest on the list of all those questions you submitted, which was, what does God think about women in ministry, or what does God think about women leading in the church? And it's, a, it's an interesting topic, because it's been, uh, this issue's been like a real hot one, especially like in the 80s and 90s. It was like really hot, really contentious. Churches would split over this. And there is a degree where obviously it's still on a lot of your minds because you asked the question and, and you voted it up. And, and it's still one I think that we're, people are thinking about and contemplating. Um, but this is one where I guarantee some of you will disagree with me. Guarantee. Some of you are like, I disagree with you a lot. All right, that's fine. <laughs> you don't have to agree with me just because I say something. We say this a lot. Like, you should go to the Word and you should see what the Word says and make sure what anything is anyone ever teaches or you read in a book lines up with the Word. And that's your job to test that. And so I assume that's what you'll do uh, today like any other time is you'll go to the Word and you'll test it. This is also one of those things where like godly men and women have come out on a different side of this than myself, and I still consider them brothers and sisters, and I still consider them great people. And so I think this is one that we can disagree on and um, still worship together and be brothers and sisters. This topic is one I could spend hours on. I won't, don't worry. Um, but if you do have further questions and things you want to talk about, this is the case, as it is all the time, shoot me an email. I'm happy to sit down with you and talk more fully about any of these topics, including uh, this one this morning. All right. Oh, I'll tell you this. You know, sometimes when we're talking about these topics, you know, you like to build it up to get to what we actually believe about it. It's, I'm just going to tell you right out, right out of the gate, so there's no questions. What's Moran Park think about this? Uh, we, we believe that women can be in any level of leadership. Um, we have elders at Moran Park that are women, and an elder is the top responsibility and leader in the church. And we've had women elders since we were still connected to Ridgepoint, and then when we became our own independent church, uh, we've always had women elders. And so um, currently we now have one woman elder, Vicki Lynn, who you saw in the video, um, but we've had a number over the past number of years. And so that, that's where we're coming from. And so I just want to get that on the table, and I want to explain why that is and, and what Scripture says about that. The thing is, it's like this topic is, is more than simply about what is women, God thinks about women in leadership in the church, but it's also, I, I want to look at how do you read Scripture, okay? Because I think, this is just as important about how to read scripture as what God actually says about women in, in leadership. And, and this is the case because it's easy to take one passage and go, well, that's what it is, I gotta do it. And there is something, don't get me wrong, there is something to the simple obedience of scripture. You see what it says and you obey it. But there's also something really important about understanding. When you're reading scripture, what does the rest of scripture say? What does other verses say about this particular topic? It's also important to look at how does this fit into the totality of Scripture, the whole narrative of Scripture, the whole flow of Scripture, of what God's trying to say from the beginning of Scripture to the end? How does this topic fit within that as well? This topic is no exception. But we do this with other topics, right? Of like, um, 
war. God's a God of justice. But then he also says things like, yeah, but love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? Don't return evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so you have to take what it says about vengeance and what it says about justice with all these other passages about loving your enemies and figure out what is God trying to say to us in the midst of all that. Same thing with finances, right? God's gonna provide for our daily bread, but he also says in Proverbs a lot about the wisdom of saving up as well and being good stewards of our finances. And so you're always trying to figure out, okay, what does scripture say about this topic? How do I study every aspect of what the word says about this and come to some kind of conclusion? And sometimes that's easier than other things. And so I don't wanna just blast these things to you this morning and be like, all right, here's all the scripture. We're good, simple case, right? I understand there's some complexities and some nuances, and that's why we can trust that the Holy Spirit is going to continue to reveal truth to us and teach us. First John chapter 4 says the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and that's a promise. Is it 4 or 2? First John says the Holy Spirit is our teacher, okay? So let's look at what it means that God, about women in ministry, women leading in the church. Amen. <laughs> Told you there's some emotions about this one, right? Um, I think if we're going to look at this idea of women in church, let's look at what, what does God think about women throughout the, the narrative of Scripture. I'm just going to do this briefly. But if we look at God creates man and woman together, and he creates them both in his image. It's not that man was created in his image, and then along comes women. It says, in male and female, he created them. In his image, God created them, man and woman together. God also gave man and woman a joint mandate together that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the earth, that they would rule over it and subdue it. Man and woman together, given that commission to go forth and to do that. God, when he created man, though, said you need a suitable helper. But we have to understand, the term helper isn't this nice passive helper. The term helper is a term that is often used for God in a warrior sense of helping his people. That's what women are called to be. But the word suitable means, it's a word that means different yet the same, kind of opposite yet equal. In, in the sense of like, yes, they look different, they act different, they have maybe some different uh, traits about them, and that's a case of gender, but also that we're called to be side by side together in the commission of what God's called us to do. It is in Genesis chapter 3 that when man and woman sin, that the result and the curse of that sin is it says that man will rule over his wife. After that curse, God begins this process of raising up women to where Jesus comes now and establishes us as equal in the kingdom and points to the day when Jesus returns where we will reign with Christ. We will lead and reign with Christ, not just males, but females as well. Well, we will be restored back to the way God intended it to be at the very beginning, uh, co-laborers and co-heirs with Christ, that we, man and woman together, will stand side by side as priests together, worshiping and serving God face to face. Now you may say, okay, that's nice, but what about all the other verses? I think there are a few uh, verses in Scripture that I'll get to in a minute that are the biggest hiccups on this issue, but I think when you look at the rest of scripture, I don't think there's a question that God has called women to minister. I don't think that there's a question about God calling women to use their gifts and to serve the church or serve people. We see this throughout scripture, right? Even back in the Old Testament, you've got Deborah, who is a woman judge. A judge during that time was a leader over the people of Israel. You have um, 
you see this in Romans chapter 16, example of Phoebe, who is a woman deaconess. That's her job, is to be deacon, to serve the church. You have also in Romans chapter 16, a woman named Junia, and, and she's called, she's one of note and notor, notability and well-known among the apostles. She is an apostle, not necessarily, not the sense of the 12 apostles, but the apostle meaning a missionary is sent one, where she was sent forth to be a missionary into new areas, where it would have been her responsibility as a missionary is to share the gospel with men and women, to train them out, both men and women, to establish churches but with both, both men and women, and appoint elders over the churches for her to go forth to the next place. That would have been her role as an apostle. You see in Acts um, Philip's daughters, you see his four daughters, and they are all prophetesses, examples of women throughout Scripture, that that's the role, is to prophesy, to speak words to the people on behalf of God. You even have it where the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were not men, but were women, which in that culture is crazy, because some say that um, women's testimony was not even accepted in the court of law. But God gave women that task to go forth and to proclaim the resurrected Jesus to the rest of the dudes that were there. My point being, among all the other examples with Jesus and all the other examples of Paul, of women being co-laborers for the gospel, co-workers for the gospel, that there are just a lot of examples of women using their gifts for the sake of the church. Now, the question then goes, yeah, okay, great. But what about women leading in the church? What about women being elders? What about women teaching? One of the primary verses used is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 through 36. It says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? All right. That's kind of interesting, right? Feel the discomfort rising already, eh? Now, we're not going to call out all the women that spoke in church this morning because obviously we, we don't believe that women should remain silent. I mean, the fact that we have all the women talking and speaking and coming up here, we, women should be able to teach. So in the, in the sermon, sh- women should be able to speak, excuse me. So then what in the world is he talking about here? When we look at scripture, it's important to look at the context. What's going on before it? What's going on after it? And you look at 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about order. And he's not just singling out one little house church or this little house church in Corinth. He's talking to all the house churches in Corinth. And he's pointing them out. He's saying, I'm addressing this issue and this issue because they're doing things that are just craziness and it's causing all kinds of disorder. And right before this, he's talking about order in regards to spiritual gifts. And he lays out criteria how to do this in order, order in an orderly fashion. 
Because one biblical principle the church is called to be when it gathers together is to be one of order, not craziness and chaos. Because when it's craziness and chaos, people can't minister to each other. People don't know what's going on. People aren't glorifying God or ministering and uplifting each other. It's just insanity. So he's saying the key is that we need to be, when we gather together, people of order and not disorder. This is how he starts this section as well. He says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Then he goes on to explain the role of women in the gathering here. And it says, right down to verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, Paul seems to be getting at something here. There's something disorderly going on. Is it the fact that women are just speaking? Is it the fact that women speaking at all is causing disorder? I would say no. In this context of rights before, what's right before this, earlier in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, it says this. I think this should be on the screen. Brothers and sisters, when you gather together, each one of you has a hymn, a song, a tongue, an interpretation, or a teaching, or a lesson, all for the building up. Oh, good, that is up there. So this brothers is not just referring to men. This is the term that can be used for brothers and sisters, just like we do mankind in our culture. can be for men and womankind. Guys can be men and women. Um, it's talking about men and women. When you gather together as the church, each one of you, men and women included, each one of you has a hymn, a song, a tongue, an interpretation, a teaching, all for the building up. How many of those things require speaking? All of them, Right? Literally a few verses beforehand, he's giving a list of these gifts and that they should be used by men and women alike that require speaking. Even earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I don't have time to get into that whole passage, but it talks about when women prophesy and when women uh, pray, there are certain requirements. Again, that's required speaking. So we can't look at this and go, what? women are never allowed to speak ever at all in the church when they gather together. It has to be something specific going on. Verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now it seems to get more at the heart of what's going on. There appears to be something regarding learning that's being disruptive in the church. And when the women are having an outburst seems a little extreme, but when they start asking questions, it's bringing shame not just on them, but it's bringing shame on their husbands as well. This is a culture that honor and shame are everything. You did everything you could to avoid shame and everything you could to promote honor to yourself, to your family, to those around you. And their behavior was not just affecting them. It was bringing shame to their husbands as well. So what were they doing? Well, during this time, women were not permitted to, to learn. Um, they would learn, maybe some would say when they were younger, but as they get older, it was only the males that were able to learn. And so some speculate and say that what was going on here is the women were asking a lot of questions to kind of catch up that was causing disruption. It's like, um, you ever been sitting in a movie and someone walks in late? And like, what's going on? Who is that? What happened? You're just like, dude, I'll tell you later, you know? It, it, it's not an issue of you shouldn't be speaking here. It's, it's causing disruption. There's another, some say there was another movement, cultural movement at the time called the New Roman Woman. It was a sexual revolution during this day where women were trying to explore, uh, explore themselves sexually and to be more free sexually. And some would say they were using the platform of teaching and learning to spout out all kinds of other things, not staying on topic and therefore causing disruption. The issue seems to be something regarding the learning. And he's saying to prevent the chaos, to prevent, to promote order, 
Paul's saying in your context, in this church, it's easier for the time being, women just ask your husbands at home and they'll clarify for you. But then it says in verse 36 that it's important for them to learn. In verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones it has reached? Meaning, don't take this away from your wives. Make sure they grow in maturity. And I would assume later on that meant that as they grew, grew in the word, they would be able to fully participate in what was going on here in the church as we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay, let's jump to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the sake of time. This is the big one. My point being that one in 1 Corinthians 14 is not that we just disregard whatever scripture says, but it's important, like, what's going on before? What's going on after? What else does scripture say about this? And help come to some conclusions based on the totality of scripture together. First Timothy chapter 2 um, has some similar things going on to it. In verse 8, it says this. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Pause for a second. There's an issue that's going on in the church. What he's addressing here is there are relational issues between the men. And some say they're trying to one-up each other by having the outward expression of their prayer, right? Their hands lifted holy and high, outwardly looking very pious, outwardly looking very religious to the Lord, but there's a lot of conflict that is going on between them. And Paul's like, listen, when you're praying, yeah, keep praying with your hands lifted high, that's fine. But even that, right, we contextualize, not many of us today uh, lift our hands high when we pray because it's not an issue of praying with our hands up, it's an issue of praying to the Lord and praying without the anger and bitterness towards one another. So he's saying, clean up that anger and bitterness towards each other when you pray. Now it goes to the women. That was the issue between the men. The women have an issue as well that's going on, and they say this in verse 9. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now again, if you came in here this morning with braided hair, this doesn't mean you're in sin, okay? If you wore gold earrings, you don't need to raise your hand. It's simply saying there's a heart of the matter that was causing the problem in this time is that the women were trying to one-up each other by who looked better. Well, I'm wearing this kind of heels. What do you got going, right? Like, I'm wearing this kind of hair. What do you got? It's, it became a competition, and the focus got away from laying down our lives to each other, serving each other, and worshiping the Lord. It became this competition between the ladies. And he's calling for honor of modesty towards what they're wearing. Make sense? All right, let's keep moving. Then it gets into this part. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Again, I think this is a similar thing that was going on in Corinth, here in Ephesus, of um, somehow the learning was causing uh, disorder, and so he's saying, do not, cause, do not have people cause disorder in the learning time. Therefore, have the women be quiet. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This tends to be the main verse that people point to for women not being able to be elders and women not being able to teach. And, and you, can, you can go that route. That's, that's between you and the Lord, right? And you study the word. That, that's fine. But I think it's important here to dig into this a little bit deeper and at least consider, consider a different way of looking at it. You see, when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach, 
My first question is, okay, where else in Scripture do we see, is there any place in Scripture where we see women teaching men? And I would say there is. Even when the passage we looked at just a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, brothers, when you gather together, each one you have a hymn, a song, a tongue, interpretation, a teaching. Therefore, the assumption would have been that some of the women would have had a teaching and would have taught in that setting, okay? Another one is, it's in, I think, let's just read it real quick, okay? Acts, Acts 18, 24 through 26. Put your finger there in 1 Timothy. We'll be right back to it. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Right, there's a guy named Apollos. He knows a lot about scripture, but he's missing some of the core stuff. And it says Aquila and Priscilla. Actually, it says the woman's name first, which that's a whole other thing. But um, Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside together and taught. And some would say, well, it's okay for the woman to teach here because the man is with her, her husband's with her to kind of be a covering over her. That is an argument from silence. That's not what it says. That's not even the prohibition in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says any woman at any time when the church gathers, or they should, not even when the church gathers, any woman at any time should not be able to teach or have authority over man. Here's a case where you see it happening. So my point being, sometimes when we read this, we're like, oh, I've got to throw out all scripture because it contradicts itself. No, it never contradicts itself. We have to look at what's the context, what's going on here, what's the heart. So apparently there are some times maybe it's not appropriate to teach, but there are a lot of times where it is appropriate to teach because something's going on with the teaching that things are disorderly, and I think we get it when we continue to press on and understand where he says, do not exercise authority over a man. Now, I think it's helpful. The word, before I get into the word author, exercise authority over a man, it, it means to usurp authority. It means to not just have authority, but to press down, to crush in authority. And I think Paul is coming against the same thing that we face today is uh, maybe um, extreme like feminism, which is not just lifting up women, but lifting up women to crush down men. That's what Paul's speaking against. Because in this culture, in this day, in the city of Ephesus, it was the center of the worship of the god, goddess called Artemis. Artemis was the god of fertility, and she was the protector of women. And if you wanted to be a... Uh, a priest in the temple of Artemis, it was only women, many say that only women could hold the highest ranks of leadership and priesthood in the temple of the goddess, goddess of Artemis. Now it was possible for, for fellas to be priests in the temple of Artemis. However, if you wanted to be a priest as a male, it required castration first. High cost. <laughs> Not only that, they said it's oftentimes like a very public spectacle as an act of worship to Artemis by the castration and the bleeding of that that would take place, right? Gruesome and brutal. But they were saying what comes out of this then is the sense of women being elevated and men being crushed down where men couldn't just be men. They had to be crushed down for women to be raised up. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. I think what Paul's ethic is, what Paul's calling us to is to raise women up to what God intended them to be but not at the expense of pushing one down over the other the other thing that we see here is that 
Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but rather the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. I think a lot of times we read this and we just bring in our assumptions and say, well, just because someone was born first, therefore, they, have, they should be the leader. If someone's born first or something takes place first, then they're more important. But we see throughout Scripture, again, Scripture must interpret Scripture. As we th- see throughout Scripture, God often chooses the lesser things to shame the wise. God chooses the lesser born instead of the older born all the time. Think about it. King David, was he the oldest? Nope. Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, then Jacob, but God used Jacob. So what's the point that he's making here? We see in the Artemis cult, Artemis was a twin to Apollos, and she was born first, and therefore, because she was born first over her brother Apollos, some would say she had more power, more notoriety, more value because of that. I think what Paul's getting at here is taking a cut right to the goddess of Artemis and saying that she is not, it's, it's not true what, uh, who she is and how she was formed and all that. It's a cut towards Artemis. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Doesn't that feel like a random verse? Well, I think it's a random verse unless you understand what's going on when he's speaking into a specific culture to a specific people that are dealing with specific things. Again, when Scripture interprets Scripture, and we read this and it says, well, it's not possible that women will be saved in sense of salvation from sin and childbearing. Right? We know that you're only saved by grace through faith. It's through repentance and belief in Jesus. That alone is what gives you salvation. That's not what applies to men. And then all women are saved through childbirth. What about women that don't have children? It, it, it's not, scripture says that that's not the case. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, the goddess Artemis was the one, she was known as the protector of women. And one of the main ways that women needed protection was they went into childbirth. There was a high percentage of women that would die when they would go into childbirth. And so before women would go into childbirth, oftentimes they would go and worship and make a sacrifice to Artemis so she would protect them in childbirth. Paul is saying, that's nonsense. You don't need Artemis. She's a joke. We have the one true God that will protect you in childbirth. Walk with him and you continue with him. Walk in faith and love and holiness and self-control. He will protect you. He's the protector. I don't mean to bore you with a bunch of details and cultural things, but what I'm trying to help you understand is that when we read Scripture, it's important to see that Scripture interprets Scripture. Understand what's going on in this. And I know there's a thing of like, well, I can never read the Bible because I don't know all this context. Like, listen, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. But I'll also say this is why it's so important that we know and study the Word. And why we do this in community. Because we're going to learn and grow from each other in these particular things. But my summary on this is I think Paul's writing to a very specific concern and a specific issue that's going on in Ephesus um, to deal with women that are trying to usurp authority over men. It was causing chaos and confusion. And so he said, fine. In this case, I'm saying it just needs to be quiet for now. But I think in the totality of Scripture, we see that God wants to raise up women and lift them up to be leaders within the church. And some would say, okay, yeah, 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 I get that. But like, what about, what about where it says a man is the head of his wife? Just like head is, Christ is head of the church. So if that's the case, then in the church, shouldn't men be head over women as well within the church? No, no. 
It is a parallel between Christ and the church. In a marriage, as I said last week, I do believe that man is to be head of his wife. However, in the church, there is only one head, not a head and a bunch of subheads. There is one head, and that's Jesus. And we, male and female together, are collectively unified as the body of Christ. I think things get real screwy in a lot of different ways when we try to make this huge hierarchy of this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. We are all in submission to Jesus Christ as the head. Even the elders are not subheads. The elders are simply servants and shepherds to spur us on into maturity so that we would grow more under the headship and the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. But the headship he models is not one that rules over and crushes us. The one that Jesus models, the one that lifts us up, the one that encourages us to use our gifts, the one that causes us to reign with Christ, the one that causes us to lead along with him. And I think that's what the call is, not just for men, but for women as well. I think even in marriages, that's the call, that we can be the head of our wives, but that means we lay down our lives, we edify, we encourage, we lift up our wives and the women around us to simply say, God has gifted you as well. Go and lead in the church. Listen, I know some of you are going to disagree with me. That's okay. But this is why we have chosen to be intentional about having women that lead at Moran Park. Because we believe it's the mandate of the Lord. That it is not just men that are kingdom ambassadors, but women as well. That we get to be a witness to the world of, what, of a preview of the day that will come when we will be reigning and ruling right alongside of the Father in the heavenly realm, in humility and grace, supporting and lifting each other up, not trying to vie for power and attention and position and title, but that we would lift one another up into the giftings and callings that God has called for us as well. And that's what we're trying to do at Moran Park. So women, we need you. Men, we need you too. Let's pray. God, we ask that you continue to give us the grace to support one another and love each other well. To not press down each other to get to a place of leadership and position and authority and power, but to lift one another up into service. God, we acknowledge that, Jesus, you alone are the head, and our desire is to grow under your headship. So, God, I pray that these things that we, we talk about in your word, that uh, we, would, we would listen to your spirit and what you're saying. The things, God, that I said that is not what you want, that you would strike them away, but the things that are, that you cause them to press them into our hearts. In areas where we agree, we wouldn't be like, oh, good, it builds my case. In those areas where we disagree, oh, an area to fight. But God, that we would spur each other on to a deeper love of your word. That we'd spur one another on deeper obedience to what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.